Hey, hey, Dan. Fran, we're back. We are. This is our second episode. How cool is that? Welcome to Give It a Second Thought. Ah, oh, thanks for coming back, anyone who's come back. Fran, how have you been? Oh, not great. I am actually just recovering from COVID. It finally got me. You had the vid. I did. I did. I had the vid. Yeah, it wasn't very fun. So I've, I'm about nine days um, after being symptomatic. So yeah, I got out of ISO yesterday, quarantine. Gosh. So you've had plenty of time to do some reading on COVID and the elderly? Interesting that you'd ask that, Dan. I sure have. I just, you know, I was sitting here in isolation with my two young daughters and I thought, golly gosh, what do older people know about this? And it wasn't fun for me to have COVID. My two daughters didn't get it, even though we shared a home the whole time. And I know lots of other people around us who've shared homes and, and some people have gotten COVID, some people haven't, some people get it quite severely and some people don't. So it did get me thinking, what, like, no wonder older people are petrified of this. What's the information out there? What should they know about COVID? So I did do some research and the research says that there needs to be more research on older people with COVID because... <laughs> As we know, older people aren't great research studies. Or Well, they tend to be excluded from trials, don't they? I think it's a few complexities there, but often they, although end up having a lot of the disease processes we have treatments for, they're often excluded from the trials, which makes it hard to know what to do. Exactly. And that was my research on COVID, that most of the research published talked about there needed to be more research. But I did actually find one really amazing uh, publication that came out last year that talked about mental health for older people, especially during quarantine um, and isolation, had some really good suggestions that older people maintain physical activity, try not to engage in unhealthy habits like drinking too much or not eating healthy. We know that older people are obviously more at risk because of those comorbidities. Just watching out for things like a temperature, which some of us who work in health might know, but yeah, I think that we know that older people are at risk and maybe we should do some research on that. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? What's the business topic? So business today, I thought being probably the most common topic that we see and face in geriatrics and psychogeriatrics with around dementia, which we spoke about in our last episode, is Alzheimer's disease. So how about uh, today we cover Alzheimer's disease? Well, that makes sense. I hope so. <laughs> All right. Do you mind if I start by asking you a few questions, Dr. Dan? Shoot. All right. Let's just hit it up hard. What is Alzheimer's disease? Well, Alzheimer's disease can cause a dementia, and it's the most common type of dementia that we have, making up between 60 to 80%. Our understanding of what causes this is really changing. Um, it's changed quite a lot over the last few decades. There's three main features which what we think causes Alzheimer's disease, and that is firstly, neuritic plaques. And you can think of those of scars on the nerves of the brain. Amyloid deposition, which are these misfolded and unhelpful proteins that sort of get in the way of things such as the day-to-day -day function of the brain. And neurofibrillary tangles, which are these tangled proteins, um, these tau proteins, and so there's scars, misfolded and tangled proteins, which stop the brain functioning as it did before. Okay, Dr. Dan, I'm going to stop you there because I just know, I mean, I've worked in this field for a while and that does make sense to me. 
but you're really good at metaphors. Is there any way that we could try to explain that in a way that's a little bit more easier for some of our listeners to understand who might not might not really understand the plaques and the tangles and the and the tau proteins? Is there any better way that we can help them understand what's going on in the brain? Well, I often feel cardiologists do a good job of explaining um, when there's a, a plaque or a bit of a buildup in the blood vessel around the heart. Mm-hmm. And so you can think of that almost like there's a, a blockage in the plumbing. With this, you could almost think about the electric system. With your house electrics, you've got your wiring that runs through. Uh, and around your wiring, you've got layers of insulation. These unhelpful proteins, these tangles, are where the wiring can have scars uh, or the insulation can be damaged but also the wires get tangled up and that can affect the way that they transmit their signal. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. I knew you'd be able to do that for us. All right, sorry to interrupt. Continue on, please. So there's a few other things that we do come across. The blood vessels are often affected and that can be by amyloid deposits or other things. There's these deposits of these alpha synuclins, which we call Lewy bodies. Yep. uh, And that's associated too with its own type of dementia syndrome. There's the hippocampus, um, which is a structure in the brain, um, and it's Greek or, or Latin, I can't remember, but it's uh, for seahorse. Mm-hmm. Um, and this structure is important for short-term memory. And often we find that this structure's changed, and we can see that on a brain image, such as an MRI. Sounds like with Alzheimer's disease, there is an overproduction of these unhelpful proteins, which has a negative effect on the memory part of the brain. So can you tell us a little bit about these proteins? What are these? Why is this happening? Well, these proteins do serve a a role. They have a function. And we have genes, uh, which are the sort of blueprints to produce these proteins, these amyloid proteins. Some of us have mutations in these genes or the blueprints that make these proteins more harmful. So for example, someone might have a mutation in their gene presenalin or amyloid precursor protein, which leads to the overproduction of these unhelpful proteins. Mm. So why is this all important? Well, for the average patient, for their family, to be honest, this isn't that important, but it's important for people trying to come up with a treatment. Mm -hmm. For example, we're now targeting these proteins. We've got treatments such as monoclonal antibodies. They go in and they clean up all these unhelpful proteins And hopefully in the future, we'll have some options to decrease the chance of dementia progressing or maybe even developing at all. Yeah, that's sort of the way it works in medicine, doesn't it? The more we understand what causes a disease, the more idea we have of how we can help treat the disease. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So these tau proteins, are they just specific to Alzheimer's disease? No, these are also found in other conditions such as progressive supranuclear palsy, corticobasal degeneration. So they've found these unhelpful tangled proteins in in, in a variety of different conditions. Wow, that's so amazing. Not that I even know a lot about proteins in just general, but understanding this a little bit about Alzheimer's disease and helping our, our listeners appreciate a little bit more about how complex it is. And even just that we're getting better at understanding what causes it, I think is a little bit hopeful. Oh, definitely. So the other question that I wanted to ask is really about what not just what changes are happening in the brain, but when do these changes start? Families ask me this all the time. What can we say about that, Dr. Dan? Well, there's often a very long period before a diagnosis is made. Mm -hmm. Um, You can call it the prodromal period. 
they've done a study, the Roddenham study, where going back from the diagnosis, which in this study was an average age of 82, they found that memory complaints were present in these patients often 16 years before the diagnosis. And they find that often with people with genetic predispositions, such if someone had an amyloid precursor protein mutation, that they might have decades of bumbling, low symptoms before a diagnosis is made. Sometimes in the clinic, we might diagnose someone as having mild cognitive impairment. And you can think about this as a bit of an intermediate step between dementia and normal cognition. Is that the sort of thing that you come off in your practice? Do you see that people on reflection note they've had symptoms for longer when we really nut down on them? Yeah, I think that we do. I think families that, that live with the, with the patient might not notice things as clearly as someone like a, a family member, like a child who lives at a distance and only sees mom or dad a few times a month. But one of the things that I really love about understanding the prodromal period and making sure that we communicate that to families is that I think some families can feel guilty when they have a loved one being diagnosed with something like Alzheimer's disease and they think to themselves, what did I do or what could I have done differently? But we know that often there's changes happening to the brain a lot longer or long, long before they even see symptoms of the disease. And I think that that can, having patients and their families understand that, it can alleviate maybe some, some guilt or stress around not knowing when to seek help, I suppose. And it's often when the, the son or the daughter comes down from interstate and yep. then they see the huge change where because these things are oh. so insidious, yep. you don't notice the changes day to day. It often takes almost an outside perspective to, to notice. Yeah. So, I mean, what has been your experience with Alzheimer's disease in terms of someone's time course and progress? I mean, you've been in the field 20 odd years now. Yes, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so I mean, I guess statistically, we know that in 2022, we have an estimated half a million Australians uh, diagnosed with, with dementia. Really that many? Yeah, and 70% of them are still living in the community, which is amazing. And that's sort of a testament to the improved care that we're providing. Um, and then there's some other a smaller cohort, about two thirds that reside in in residential aged care facilities. But one of the things that I think is really amazing about Alzheimer's disease, that when I first started to work in older persons' mental health roles, we used to talk about the sort of Alzheimer's disease being terminal and the course of the illness between about six to 10 years. That was in education that I was giving, you know, up until 2010, 2012. And the more recent data that we're seeing is that someone being diagnosed with this Alzheimer's disease can live up to 20 years which is really, you know, a testament to, you know, the advances in medicine and, and uh, understanding, you know, what causes the disease, as we just spoke about or you just spoke about, and the care that we're providing. So we do know that people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease can die because of Alzheimer's disease or complications later on in the stage of the disease. But I just really think, though, that the fact that the what's presented now in the research as from diagnosis to potential death uh, has doubled since I've been in working in geriatric medicine is just really hopeful. Hmm. Sounds like we're diagnosing it earlier, we're planning better. Yep. And so that's hope for people coming through. Yeah, yeah, it's a hopeful. It's That's a hopeful answer, I think. And what symptoms do you note with someone with Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, so I think 
having worked in this area of, of certainly diagnostics of neurocognitive disorders, one of or there's a few key things, I suppose, that I see in Alzheimer's disease patients that classically have Alzheimer's. The first and foremost is the short-term memory deficits. So we talk about people with Alzheimer's disease having a, a more sort of stronger sort of long-term memories, for, for a better word of that, or crystallized long-term memories. So we'll see them forgetting things uh, or, or things that they've learned more recently, more recent events. They might forget, you know, the day of the week or events that have happened in, in the past few weeks or past months. But when I ask them about where they grew up or where they went to school or what was their address when they were a kid, they sort of can grab that. Like, that information is, is easy to grab. They can tell me the name of their school, their address, their phone number, where they met their wife when they were at a dance at 18 and all that information is just really easy for them to grasp and, and, and tell us without any hesitation. Where the short-term memory stuff, especially if we're seeing someone in hospital or in the clinic, they, they might not know what day it is or the year, and sometimes that's okay. But that, that's short-term memory problems really accompanied by some communication deficits that we often see. Sometimes that's word-finding difficulties or semantic language deficits, which is really when people can recognize a word, but they can't quite remember what the word means, what so can really catch them up in conversations. They can have visual-spatial deficits, so they can have trouble for recognizing common objects to them. Um, or getting lost in spaces is, a, is another thing that we see. There's this really interesting, we, we have these really interesting cells in the hippocampus called place cells, which help us to navigate our own way through an environment. That can be impaired in Alzheimer's disease. And we also see people with motor disturbances. So sometimes that can be a bit of ataxia where they're having a difficulty walking or they may be unbalanced or they get a shuffling gait. All of these sorts of symptoms can come at different stages and sometimes that short-term memory stuff might be the first thing that we hear families say. And it might be as simple as uh, your grandma saying that she thinks somebody's playing tricks on her by moving her bag just because she forgets exactly where she put her bag. <laughs> but any of those sort of symptoms is, is really what we see classic for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I do a lot of assessments around short-term memory, long-term memory, those visuospatial stuff. And yeah, just really try to, to, to unpack that for, for patients. But what am I missing here? I feel like I'm mumbling on here, Dr. Dan. What are the other stuff that you see in Alzheimer's disease? Well, I think I agree with that, that the short-term memory is often impaired. So they don't know where they've hidden the Easter eggs. That's right. Um, but the long-term memory, they know that you hide Easter eggs Yeah, at Easter. <laughs> they do, yeah. And I often find that things like the executive function, there's a, a particular variant of Alzheimer's, so a type of Alzheimer's which we call the frontal or dis-executive, where they often can be less motivated or more disorganized and lack insight into those sorts of symptoms. So often you do see that. And then I often find that the those things with semantic language, so your vocabulary and your concepts, your walking, eating, day-to-day -day function things, they're often better preserved initially mm -hmm. uh, and something that you see as the condition develops sort of further along the way. Yeah, one of the things we ask people, uh, for anyone listening, is the months of the year. You know, how do people know that? But they mm. just know it. And that's often unchanged in something like Alzheimer's disease. They'll still know the days of the week. They'll still know the months of the year, certainly in the beginning um, of the disease course. And as that sort of disease process goes from the hippocampus structure, which is the seahorse, mm -hmm. into some of the other places of the brain, uh, that's when that 
those symptoms a bit more prevalent. So if they've lost the ability to name the days of the week backwards, yep. knowing that sort of concept often indicates that other parts of the brain have been affected. That's so right. when do you tell someone they need to get help? When, when do you... Yeah, this is an interesting question because I do get asked this a lot and we don't know the answer to that really. Obviously, there's certain things that put people at more risk. So I feel like people who live alone, who don't have a lot of supports around them are at more risk. I think people who've ever suffered something like a delirium, which is an acute confusional episode, which can happen when someone's really unwell. People who have multiple comorbidities but also people who might also be having other symptoms. So if someone's telling you that they're worried about their memory, surely that's a good reason to see a doctor. But if they're also telling you that they're feeling down in the dumps and they don't know why, or they're maybe a little bit paranoid, or they're, like I suggested, that lady who thinks that someone's breaking into the house and moving her bag around. Or if you go and visit a neighbor and you notice that they take the milk out of the pantry, those sorts of things would make me say, please go see a doctor, because we certainly know that early diagnosis and early intervention can really help the course of the illness. So again, keeping people alive longer and quality of life as well, keeping people in their homes if that's where they want to stay for as long as possible. So you mentioned delirium. I was just going to track back to that a little bit. What would be how someone might present, what would be a, a little case study um, that you might pick someone in hospital who, if the doctor come along and said, that looks like a delirium to me, what would they be meaning by that? So a delirium, unlike dementia, so dementia is something that occurs slowly over time and something like Alzheimer's disease, very insidious. Imagine Alzheimer's disease like a really slow progressing ramp that goes downwards, slowly, not a fast one that someone's going to fall off their wheelchair on, but a, a slow one. So that's dementia, slow and progressive, where delirium is when people can become quite suddenly confused and agitated, disorientated, not like their normal self. It can develop over hours, very quickly, over days. And it usually indicates that something medically is really unwell. It's, a, it's really a medical emergency. Okay, so maybe they've developed an infection yep. or had a sudden medication change, that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so those are the types of things that we'd worry about. And there, people can get them at any age. Anyone can get a delirium. And I think that it just states that they're really quite medically unwell at that time. But if you've ever had a delirium, your, your chances or your uh, perceptibility for something like a dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, is a little bit greater. Is that true? Well, I think it's really a marker of the brain being fragile. Yeah. As you develop a more progressed dementia or more advanced dementia, what causes a delirium, the deficit or the insult is often less. So for example, if you're 30 years old and you have a big accident, you're on lots of pain medicines, you're in the intensive care unit, you've had multiple operations, you haven't slept for two weeks, I suspect you'd have a delirium. As you get older, maybe it's missing some medications, developing a urine tract infection or other sort of thing. So not quite as extreme as the case in the ICU, and that's sort of reflecting how fragile the brain is underneath the surface. Well, I'm going to just note this for a future episode, and hopefully this is a bite to get people back. But on a future episode, Dr. Dan, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but I will tell you a story about when I had a delirium when I was 18. Ooh, watch out for episode three. <laughs> watch out. So how do we diagnose Alzheimer's disease? Well, first of all, we need to see if this 
person pitched the picture. Alzheimer's disease is typically a disease of older age. It's fairly unusual for someone to have Alzheimer's before the age of 60. And the chance increases exponentially, essentially doubling every five years after the age of 65. There are a few exceptions. For example, people with Down syndrome often develop earlier. Because of their trisomy 21 or having an extra chromosome, they get an additional gene which produces more amyloid proteins. So they often will have symptoms 10 to 20 years younger. And we have to think of that when seeing if someone fits the right picture. We're looking for their symptoms and they matched up, as you mentioned before, episodic memory issues, maybe they have some executive function. Uh, and then we do a clinical tests. We do an examination looking for clues that another disease might be going on, such as Parkinson's or low thyroid function. And then we do some office tests. You've probably come across a few of these brands. So yes. there's the MMSC, the Mocha, the Rudas, the mm -hmm. Ace. What do you tend to use? Well, I change it up depending on my patients. So if we think that someone might have some executive functioning deficits and they maybe have an education that's more reflective of someone who's finished high school, I'd look at using something like the Mocha, which is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. But if they haven't done a lot of... You don't just use that because you're Canadian. Yeah. It's not a, a <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. That's another it. plug for Canada. Wait till we talk about the Ottawa ankle rule. But yeah, if somebody maybe doesn't have a, a, a lot of education or they're from a background that's not necessarily English speaking, I'd use a different tool that we know as the RUDAS. So I tend to be very person or patient centered in what tool that I use. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. The mini mental state examination, which you'll often see in the clinic, the MMSE, mm. the test out of 30 was made in about the mid-1970s, yep. um, looking to differentiate Alzheimer's from psychiatric patients. Mm -hmm. So although it definitely has a role, um, there are other uh, tests that we use. And then the ACE, the Addenbrooks, Addenbrooks, do you use that commonly? Not commonly, but I will use it in more detailed assessments, say if we're really looking at something like somebody's capacity, and that's their ability to make decisions, especially for staying at home and safety. If I'm trying to gather a lot of information about someone's cognitive abilities with their strengths and their limitations, for whatever reason that might be, or if we're really not sure on a diagnosis and I'm just sort of throwing a few tools at them. So, but, yeah. so as on average, most of these tests are out of 30 taking about five to 10 minutes to do. Yep. And they might ask you questions such as what day it is, yep. what, where you are at the moment. They might have you doing drawings such as drawing a clock face or uh, a cube or different shapes. And we do these different parts of the exam to try and trigger down on different parts of the brain that might be affected. Yep. Sometimes yeah. we do neuropsychologic testing, which is often much more involved and can take many hours, but that's pretty uncommon. We also do imaging, and that's often to rule out other causes of memory or personality or function change, but also to get clues of what the underlying disease might be, Alzheimer's, vascular, or other types of dementia. We've got an MRI brain, which is my probably preferred image over a CT. I think it's more sensitive. But now we've also got newer imaging, so PET imaging, or positron emission topography, where we're looking to see either are there amyloid or tau plaques in the brain, which we can do with amyloid and tau PET imaging. Also, we can see how the brain takes up sugar. 
So for someone with Alzheimer's disease, the hippocampal structure or the seahorse structure will often take up less sugar, indicating that it's not functioning compared to other parts of the brain. And often that'll match up with our testing. We do biomarkers uncommonly, and a biomarker is a term where we either take from the blood or from the fluid around the spine, looking for different clues that a process might be going on. So for example, we might find clues that there's amyloid or tau proteins being deposited on the brain. To be honest, I don't order that very often. Yeah. It would only be a few times per year that that study is really required for our day-to-day -day practice. So I think while everyone would be examined um, and very commonly I would do those cognitive tests as we talked about, like yeah. the mini mental state exam, the mocker or the RUDAS, I usually recommend imaging. I think that's a good screening tool, but less commonly things like the PET imaging and then less commonly still taking fluid from someone's spine, looking for those biomarkers. That's a good summary. And I, I think that this was an important question to put in this episode because some people are really scared of this diagnosis and how it's diagnosed. And a lot of what we do to help direct us to a diagnosis of a dementia or neurocognitive disorder, it, it really isn't painful. It's maybe time consuming. And we have to ask a lot of questions. That's, I was always known in the hospital as the lady who asks a million questions. But I suppose just thinking it's, we're all just trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. That's right. And the more information we have, the, the better we are at making that sort of diagnosis. Absolutely. And I suppose to make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, we just need to make sure that the process is actually interfering with their day-to-day -day activities and that it's a decline on where they were before. Mm -hmm. There's no other condition such as a recent illness or a psychiatric condition such as depression. Yep that's getting in the way. And then these symptoms, are, they've been progressive. And so I suppose that's probably the, the main part of it. Fantastic. And genetic testing. And genetic testing. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget genetic testing. Genetic testing is really important because a lot of people, and I think we mentioned this on episode one, some people ask if it's catchy. Is it catchy? No, you can't catch Alzheimer's disease, but it can be inherited. Is that right, Dr. Dan? Certainly, and we do do genetic testing, although it really accounts for less than 1% of the cases that we see. Mm. There's certain genes, such as the amyloid precursor gene and the precylinar gene, which we talked about earlier in the episode, mm. um, which can be measured, but not commonly. We do have the APOE4 gene, mm -hmm. and that, if you carry it, means that you have two to three times the risk of developing Alzheimer's. And if you have two copies of the gene, that suddenly jumps to eight to ten times the risk. Although, to be honest, I don't think it really changes what we do, mm -mm. and it's not something that I routinely measure. No, we've known about the APOE4 gene for, or the APOE gene for a very long time, and as much as I've worked in geriatric psychiatry, I don't know that we've ever had a patient go forward with it or a family. I think just them knowing that there is a chance that it could be genetic is probably enough for families to just keep an eye out for it. And we often do ask patients if they had a family member who's ever had a dementia as well, which can be just that extra bit of information for us. Well, we do know that 10 to 30% uh, increased risk if you have a close relative with Alzheimer's yeah. dementia. Yeah. So I feel like I've talked too much. Well, you haven't at all. And there's so much more that we could talk about. There's treatments around for, for dementias and, and caring for people, but I reckon that should be another episode. What do you think? I think so. Time for a brandy dandy summary. All right, I'm going to do my best here. 
So here we go. Today we talked about Alzheimer's disease. So main takeaway there, it's the most common disease that causes dementia. There's up to half a million Australians living with Alzheimer's disease or dementia right now. Uh, there's changes that happen to the brain that happen over a long period of time. So don't ever feel guilty if you didn't take your loved one to the doctor quick enough. The course of the illness is up to 20 years, which has changed significantly over the last few decades. So we're getting better at managing Alzheimer's disease and treating Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is diagnosed by a series of, of clinical tests that are just a lot of questions and brain imaging. What did I miss in the brandy dandy summary? This could be my COVID brain fog. Is there anything else that we should have there, Dr. Dan? Well, probably a joke. Oh, Dr. Dan, can I do the joke this week? Oh, it's against tradition of one episode, <laughs> but I think this time we'll make an exception. Okay. How did the butcher introduce his wife at a party? Oh, I feel like it's snag. I'm trying to work a way to get the pun there. What's the answer? Meet Patty. Too good. Too good. <laughs> All right. Well, let's finish it there. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Dr. Dan. We'll see you next time. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye.